morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 17th, we are studying Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Jesus begins his public ministry of preaching and healing. He fulfills the scriptures in doing so, and he calls his first disciples to follow him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flamey. Pastor Flamey serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamey, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's great to be here. Pastor Flamey, as we get started this morning, give us some context. Where are we in Matthew's Gospel? Where have we been that will help us with the text today? Yeah, great question. Well, as you can see at the beginning of chapter 4, Uh, We just heard about the temptation of Jesus, which is the work that Jesus takes up after his baptism, which uh, concludes the third chapter. Uh, So that's really the the groundwork here. In the the baptism of Jesus, he enters into into publicly being shown to be the the Messiah, the Christ. John the Baptist and, and witnesses see the heavens open, they hear the voice of the Father, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove upon Jesus. And then somewhat surprising, maybe to us, is that his very first work isn't even among people, but among uh, uh, the temptation of Satan. And so Jesus, in, in chapter 4, is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted three times by the devil. And in each of those temptations... Jesus is victorious, and he is victorious over the Satan by remaining faithful to his Father according to, his, according to God's Word. And with the Word of God, finally, he drives Satan away. And we should see the temptation of Jesus as being our victory. As Satan tries to, to tear down Jesus in the same way as he tore down Adam, uh, by making man fall away from God according to his Word, Jesus remains faithful, and that victory is now part of the baptismal righteousness that Jesus is fulfilling from the, uh, uh, all the way up until the cross, where he finally pays passively uh, uh, the price for sin by suffering God's wrath in our place. So, Pastor Fleming, with that, with that thought that in the baptism of Jesus we see him fulfilling all righteousness for us, in the temptation of Jesus, we see him winning the victory over Satan for us. One of the, the themes that's come up is that we see Jesus as an Israel reduced to one, that he does what Israel couldn't do. As you said, he does what Adam couldn't do, and he does it for sinners. Is that a theme that we're going to see continue into today's text as well? I know we haven't read it yet, but but just as a, a way of introduction, does, do we see that, or does that kind of go into the background a little bit? That's a great question. Uh, that is a major part of how uh, Matthew presents Jesus, uh, especially concerning how, uh, some of the prophecies that he cites. Uh, uh, and I'm thinking especially like out of Egypt, I have called my son. And that can only be taken, I think, typologically, uh, that uh, Matthew's making the theological point that everywhere where Israel failed in faithfulness towards God, 
Jesus, in their place, as the faithful Israel, is going to be faithful, and then he's going to give that faithfulness, uh, uh, the, the merits of his faithfulness, the fruits of his faithfulness, to those who love him. Um, uh, what we will see, in, in, instead of uh, seeing Jesus as the Israel of one this time, uh, what we're going to be seeing is the new Israel being brought to life, being resurrected spiritually by the work of the Messiah for them. And that's really the theme of the first part of the lesson today, especially uh, concerning, the, uh, considering the citation from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, what happened to Israel in the north? And uh, what kind of hope should they have expected based upon the preaching of the prophets? And thanks be to God, we see that in Christ and what he does uh, here at, this, uh, at the back half of uh, chapter 4. Uh, that he fulfills the words of the prophet, not with uh, military conquest or, or rescuing people uh, through force of arms, but by preaching the gospel uh, to people who would otherwise be dead in their trespasses and sins. And this is the great thing. Uh, in doing it in this mixed land of Galilee, the preaching of the light of the gospel is going to shine upon the Jews and also upon the Gentiles alike. And so it shows us the direction, the Gentile direction that the gospel will be heading. Let's take a look at the text then. We've got Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25 this morning. Matthew writes, Now when he, that's Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was fulfilled by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. There is our text today, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Pastor Flamey, as, as the text begins then, once again, Matthew highlights for us where Jesus goes. He's, he's going into Galilee, and, and the text says he withdrew into Galilee. Is, is Jesus running away from something here? What, what's going on with the way that Jesus begins his ministry here? Yeah, the church fathers apparently had a debate about this, <laughs> especially since the verb that, that Matthew uses is the same verb that uh, I think describes the wise men trying to get away from Herod and his violence. And so is this a planned retreat? Is there, 
is Jesus getting out of uh, getting out of the southern regions because of some sort of threat against his life? The same threat that maybe had landed uh, John in prison. Well, I don't know. I, I think that uh, the verb can be with, uh, translated withdrew um, in in a simple sense, and I think that that's uh, I, I think that that's what's meant here. I, w- the the important thing is that Jesus waits. This is what I find interesting. Uh, according to how Matthew sets it up, Jesus waits for John to conclude his ministry before entering into you know the, his his full time preaching and teaching ministry himself, which is uh, a great honor, <laughs> I think. Uh, that that Jesus, uh, you know, he he picks the time and he picks the place. It's distinct from where John was preaching, and at the same time, he didn't want to step on John's toes by by trying to compete with him at the same time. Uh, so it, it, by withdrawing into Galilee, I mean, I, I suppose you could think of several reasons why that is necessary. The very first one we mentioned already, that perhaps it wasn't entirely safe for him uh, to be in the South. Uh, the second reason, uh, I think, is that because he, he's familiar with this environment. It is his, uh, it's his home. It's only natural for him then, therefore, to, to preach there. It's also... Uh, the home of, of his first disciples, which we're going to be hearing about. They, his disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, John, fish the Sea of Galilee, probably close to Capernaum, where Jesus is going to set up his, his home base there. Uh, and then finally, and this is kind of the spiritual interpretation, if you will, <laughs> that and I read this in Lenski, I think, and I, but I like it. Uh, it, it, it. He said that Jesus wants to, his preaching and his ministry uh, to not start in the place where you would expect it, and that is in Jerusalem, <laughs> the, uh, among the halls of power, uh, among the kings and palaces, among the, even among the priests in the temple. Instead, Jesus wants to, his word to stand uh, alone and to draw uh, the foreigners and the strangers and those people who had been considered lost uh, far to the north in ancient times. You know, the, the ten tribes to the north were, were infamous for their unfaithfulness. Uh, this is where the gospel is going to be directed, towards the lost. Um, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like that the final spiritual interpretation. But that's as, good, that's as much as I've thought about it, I think, so far. Well, I think I think all those are helpful answers, particularly that last one. Given what Matthew's done already in terms of what you might expect, the the first worshipers that come to Jesus in Matthew are those that you probably wouldn't have expected. It's the Magi, and then I mean, multiple times you've seen Jesus do things. Well, in his baptism, that was something that John didn't expect, and so here too. I mean, and and I think it's it's helpful just to keep in mind sort of the movements of Jesus, right? So he was born in Bethlehem, and then he had to flee Bethlehem to go to Egypt. Joseph brought his family, and again, Bethlehem's in the south. He was going to bring his family back to Bethlehem, but didn't because of, of the threat from Herod. So he moved up into the north to Nazareth. Jesus has come back down south again, or he's go, he goes up. You go up to Jerusalem, that area, because it's up in elevation. For his baptism, he's been tempted. And now rather than staying there again, he's going to the north again, back to Galilee. And and the one the one thing I don't think you've touched on yet, Pastor Flammy, in terms of the significance of him beginning his ministry up there, is that it it fulfills scripture. And that's what that's where Matthew takes us in the text. So so take us into the scripture that Matthew brings up here. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and we saved the best for last. I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh, this, if anything, I mean, this is one of the things I'm, I'm surprised about when I uh, read some of the reformers or other church fathers on how they read the Holy Scriptures. I mean, oftentimes we might ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus do what he do? And especially if the text isn't entirely clear, it doesn't have like a, a dissertation on one particular movement of Jesus or another. Uh, what the Reformers and the Church Fathers like to draw our attention to is that um, the psychological reasons or, or even the material, ne- material necessity of being in one space or another or moving from one place to another aren't nearly as important as the fact that Scripture had to be fulfilled. God had to be proven faithful to his promise. And, and this, this is how Matthew invites us to read what Jesus is doing. Why is he preaching Galilee? It's because Isaiah said the light would, would shine there. <laughs> you know, it's because the preaching must come there according to God's word, according to prophecy. So Jesus went there with the intention of fulfilling the Holy Scriptures, fulfilling his own word, of proving God to the people to be faithful and merciful, and that if we are to, 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 uh, to, uh, uh, to deal with God, if we are to uh, come to God at all, it has to be according to his word, because that's where God wants to be shown to be faithful and merciful to us. Uh, it, now, back in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, uh, let's see, I think I had that drawn up somewhere. Ah, yes, here it is. If you just give me a moment to open it up, here we are. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, that is the Lord, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then the second verse of, of Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now this is following right on the heels in Isaiah, uh, God's uh, preaching of God's judgment and wrath against the northern kingdom because of their continued impiety, their idolatry, and their wickedness. And because of that, the Assyrian invasion is coming. And it will, uh, and through a series of invasions and attacks, the northern kingdom will be decimated. And this is God's wrath against sin. A very tangible and bloody example of, of what it means when you break that, the covenant of the law, that they would hold the land if they were faithful to the law. They broke their side of the covenant, and now God's anger will come upon them. Now, after all of that is said and done, you have words of mercy and promise. And it says that, and so the gloom, which is that the cities had been emptied, the people carried off into exile, uh, uh, the, the people slain uh, by this, this terrible enemy. Uh, despite this gloom and despite this anguish, uh, the Lord in a latter time is going to make glorious the way of the sea which is this traditional area of, uh, of mixed worship, of pagan idolatry, uh, this land of Nephtali, which would have been on the, the north 
and the west of the Sea of Galilee, and Zebulun, which is even further west towards the Mediterranean Sea. So even though this was in an infamous area, even when it was a a possession of these tribal, uh, of these tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun, nevertheless, uh, it was known for idolatry and and pagan worship. Uh, Here is where God will show the light, shine the light on those who are in darkness. What kind of darkness? Now, not just the darkness of foreign oppression, but especially the darkness of unbelief. This is where the light will shine, and this is where the, uh, the blessing of God will come. And, uh, and we see that the kind of light in the person of Christ that God wants to give to the north. Uh, and, and, and I think that this is what Matthew is showing us, and, and he's saying, look, everything that Isaiah has been prophesying about the restoration of the northern kingdom It's coming true in Christ and the work that he's doing. And the people gathered around him are, in fact, the very uh, reconstituted Israel that people have been looking forward to since uh, the northern northern kingdom has been destroyed. I I think it's fascinating that here, right before Jesus begins his public ministry, Matthew brings up Isaiah 9. And right when Matthew was introducing Jesus... In the beginning of his gospel, he brings up Isaiah chapter 7, the promise of Emmanuel. And I, I wonder if, if he's if he invites us to connect those those two and, and maybe draw oh, sort yeah. of a, a, a couple of bookends here on who Jesus is, what he's come to do through that lens that Isaiah gives us in chapters more than just 7 and 9, but really that whole first part of Isaiah. Have any thoughts on that, Pastor Flaming? Yeah. Uh, so in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, we have a beautifully clear prophecy that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and call his name God with us. And, uh, and this is the Holy Scriptures that, that, is, uh, that it's, that's cited uh, by Matthew when, when Jesus is, is, is born. And then we have in Isaiah chapter 9, just so that we would understand that this is not, we're not to look for multiple, I suppose, messiahs or multiple Christs. Uh, perhaps, you know, Isaiah is talking of a hundred things. No, he's actually, he actually has one subject, and that one subject is Christ. Further down, in that, uh, that joyful preaching of mercy, of God's mercy and restoration for the people of Israel in chapter 9, you have the famous verse uh, in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Thanks be to God for that. So, yes, I mean, where is this light going to come from? It's from the, the seed that is being, that's going to be born of the virgin. Um, and he has, and, and more than just being called Emmanuel, he's given like, what, five other names here. <laughs> wonderful names. Uh, uh, wonderful Counselor, or you could take him as separate, I suppose. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is no typical human being, but this is going to be God in the flesh, just as Isaiah indicated earlier. And now in, in chapter 9, you see sort of the, the breadth of his work. 
And so Jesus then takes up that breadth of work here in Matthew chapter 4 by preaching, as you, as you said earlier, not by any sort of military conquest. The darkness that was there in the, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the darkness of unbelief which reigned, Jesus is going to fight with his preaching. And so he comes preaching, and, and, and when he comes preaching, it, it's something we've heard already in Matthew's gospel. What, what, how does Jesus begin his, his preaching here, Pastor Flamey? Uh, yeah, just as John did. Repent. <laughs> turn from your sins. Uh, turn from your sins. And then he says words of, of mercy and kindness, you know, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, it, he means it's here. The kingdom uh, that, that, God is re- that, that God is creating new, the kingdom that, of God's mercy and love, the kingdom upon which the Davidic king will sit for an eternity is here now. And, and he intends the people to know that it is fulfilled in him. And whoever hears his word and believes it. Uh, there's a great parallel passage to this. And I hope that we, we come to it. I mean, eventually, I suppose, in sharper iron, you'll get to the, the gospel according to St. Luke. But there in Luke chapter 5, you have this episode of Jesus returning to Nazareth entering into the synagogue, and then reading, again, from the prophet Isaiah, and, and, uh, and quoting from, from Isaiah, was it in chapter 5? Oh, I think it's in oh, chapter 4. Thank you. <laughs> you were okay. close. So anyway, I, yeah, I was pretty close. So yeah, he, he quotes from Isaiah again, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then you have this dramatic moment where Jesus closes the book or rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant. Every eye is fixed on Jesus, and then Jesus says what nobody expects. These words are fulfilled in your hearing. That is... I am the subject of the prophecy. That's the kind of preaching that Jesus is doing. He's not being shy about who he is and what the kingdom of heaven will be. But he comes preaching the gospel with a full voice, you know, and saying that the, the holy scriptures are being fulfilled in me. And he shows who he is by not hiding but by rather healing the sick, as many of them as be, are, are brought to him. And that's the picture that Matthew wants us to have, especially at the end of the chapter. Uh, now, back to the content of the preaching, right? Repent. Metanoia. Uh, what does that mean? It means to be turned, to be turned around, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be turned away from sin, uh, which is the work of God's law. You know, in preaching the law, uh, you see your sin for what it is. It's, uh, it's, unmasked. It, you know, sin looks beautiful and lovely and desirable as long as we let the devil's lies wrap around it, right? <laughs> but once the devil's lies that surround sin are torn down and burst apart, you see, sin is the ugly thing that can only be death and lead to death. Uh, sin are the, only those things that are in direct opposition to God's gift of, of life. Uh, the things that come from loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And to come to the full knowledge of sin as, as being spiritual and, and bodily death and, of, and being able to see ourselves as uh, 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 so trapped in sin that we are unable to help ourselves 
is a gift of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures, working through the preaching of the law. This is not a natural knowledge of the law, this preaching of repent. This has to come from the Scriptures and point out the fact that man is dead in his trespasses. But once man has been killed by the preaching of the law, Jesus raises up that person spiritually by saying, but now is God's kingdom here. And instead of having the darkness of death, which is exactly the point that Matthew is making by citing Isaiah chapter 9, instead of sitting in the darkness of death, being unmo- unmoving in the, in the grave of death, now Jesus is going to let his light of God's grace shine on you. And he is going to raise you up by his will, by his work, and by his power, by speaking God's mercy for people who in no way deserve it, right? That's the kingdom of heaven coming to people. Uh, do you ever use this in catechism class, Pastor Apple, the, uh, the, the, the distinction between the kingdom of power and the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory? That usually comes up when I teach the, oh, which petition is it? Thy kingdom come. That's number, that's the second petition, right? That, that's normally when yeah. that comes up. Yes. Exactly. So it's great when we're able to say very, very clearly, especially when, it, when we're preaching the second petition and we're praying for God's kingdom to come, uh, that we're clear about the, what kingdom this is. Obviously, God rules over all things, right, according to his power. Now it's what we call the kingdom of power, the solar system, the universe, the galaxies, the planets, uh, the nations, and even all the stuff that happens underneath the earth. All of that belongs to God's kingdom of power. But in God's kingdom of power, you don't know about God's love, which is only revealed by his word and his word of grace. And to belong to the kingdom of grace, you need to have the word, the preaching and faith. Uh, and the kingdom of grace is a, a, another, another wonderful word for it, is the church. You know? So what is Jesus doing in saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He's founding the Holy Christian Church, which is a kingdom un, unlike anything else that you see in the world. Instead of having boundaries and borders and armies and, and dignitaries and congresses, it has preachers and people who hear and believe and trust that even though they're attacked by many things in this life, Yet they will overcome the victory according to God's promise, according to his faithfulness for us. Uh, and, so this, and so this is the kind of kingdom that we have in the church, a kingdom where God reveals himself in grace, and we cannot find that outside of the word and the preaching, uh, the, uh, which Jesus is engaging in here. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO, looking at Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 25. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233.
Each weekday on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of Living Boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Friday, January 17th, we are studying Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25 with Pastor Brian Flammy of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and I love the way you laid it out that here Jesus is calling forth the Christian church. He's, he's founding the Christian church here with this preaching of the kingdom. And earlier you talked about how Jesus is going to reconstitute Israel. So you've got a, a new Israel. The church has been has been founded here by Christ. And so immediately he goes from there and he he calls his first disciples as, as Matthew records it. And there's there's plenty of things for us to talk about as Jesus calls his disciples here. Oh, I don't know where you want to start. Maybe maybe some of the one of, I think one of your notes it has this, how, how does this relate to the call narratives that we see in the other Gospels, particularly John? Where if, if you're on the three-year lectionary, which we are here in Smith, I'm not sure if you are in, in Roswell, this coming Sunday is actually John chapter 1 where, where the baptizer says, look, there's the Lamb of God, and he, a couple of his disciples follow him. And that's how John yeah. records it. And, and here Jesus has, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. How do, how do we put those two things together? Yeah, I, I don't think that we see these as conflicting reports. Rather, the chronology in Matthew's gospel is a bit compressed. And from time to time, Matthew will put things out of order because he's making theological points about who Jesus is and what he, and what he did, which is fine. He has that kind of freedom and liberty. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, they weren't as, I don't know what you would say, anal retentive as Americans when it comes to timelines and histories. <laughs> That doesn't mean that what they recorded didn't happen. It just may not have happened in the, in, in the exact chronological order, uh, which is why St. Luke goes out of his way to say, lots of things have been written about Jesus already, dear Theophilus, but I'm going to try to set it in as orderly a way as I can. And he probably means partially orderly as accor- uh, according to time, right? Now, in John's gospel, he's, the, the, the apostle in his old age knows about the gospel according to St. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he knows how they, they reflect one another, and, and, and uh, they agree with one another, and uh, uh, the structure of the, the, is what we call the synoptic gospels roughly follow one another. 
And then John says, well, people ought to know about the things that happened uh, before John was arrested and before Jesus uh, uh, really started preaching in such a way to draw the crowds after his arrest. And that's where we hear about Jesus returning. And this is, this is my opinion. Uh, I don't think you could, I'm sure other arguments could be made. But it seems as if in John's gospel that Jesus returns from the wilderness after his temptation and victory over the devil. And as he, re, and as he comes back towards the Jordan River, that is when John the Baptist points up at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, especially after speaking to the people gathered around him, talking about how he saw what happened at Jesus' baptism, how he saw uh, uh, the, the heavens open, the Spirit settle upon him, and, and heard the voice of the Father. And, and when he points at Jesus, in that moment, John is, is fulfilling his ministry in the most full and complete sense. He's pointing away from himself, and with his word, he's directing all eyes to be fixed on Jesus. And thanks be to God, because a handful of, uh, uh, of the people who are gathered around John the Baptist listening to, to God's word are, uh, see Jesus, and now they become Jesus' disciples. Uh, most notably in John's gospel, you have Andrew, who grabs his brother Peter, right? And, and you also have uh, uh, John the Apostle himself. And again, that's my opinion. He doesn't name himself there, but I think that the, the firsthand experience uh, certainly indicates it. And then you have Philip and Nathaniel, and that really funny episode of Jesus seeing Nathaniel under the tree. Uh, Jesus saying, I saw you under the tree, and Nathaniel confessing, like eagerly confessing, uh, you are the Son of God <laughs> and the Messiah. You know? And then Jesus says, greater things than this you will see, the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, this probably happens, like I said, right after the temptation. And then it, it, at, after that, Jesus returns uh, to Galilee, uh, and he settles back down there. And these men probably follow Jesus as his disciples. But as we see in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in what Matthew records today, they probably weren't doing full-time seminary work. Uh, rather, they were hanging around Jesus probably when they could, listening to him. Um, and uh, the rest of the time, if you're Andrew and Peter or James and John, uh, you're working the nets, like how you should to make money in this world. <laughs> and, and Jesus hasn't stopped them yet. Now that John is arrested, now that Jesus has to preach more publicly and openly and draw all the people to himself, uh, now that that has to happen, he says, the time for, uh, you know, summer school has ended now we have to get down to business. And then he says to them, drop everything. I will make you fishers of men. And that's what we're going to talk about right now is, is uh, what's going on here with the divine call into the ministry. Sure. So, so take us into that. The, I, mean, so I think it's a very familiar phrase to us. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What, what does that mean that they will be fishers of men? Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor. Really beautiful. And, you could, and there's a, all kinds of things happening here. Uh, uh, first of all, we see that when, when it comes time for Jesus to handpick those who will do his preaching after him, he doesn't choose the philosophers. He doesn't choose the established and, and uh, uh, I suppose, well-respected religious leaders that would have sat on the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He doesn't pick kings. Instead, he picks these fishermen, 
uh, just common laborers, uh, regular people. <laughs> and he does it to show that, that, uh, that God, through his choice, uh, and, and, through his, and, and through his decision, can supply everything that's necessary for the ministry of the church and the ministry of the word, right? It's not as if you take uh, a required amount of human wisdom or power, then God comes with his grace, and now you have somebody who's fit to be a minister. Uh, I don't know, if, have you ever heard of this before? Of, uh, uh, especially seminarians who are entering into the, the Pope's church. Uh, oftentimes in undergrad, uh, they're really thoroughly indoctrinated with philosophy. And the explanation that they sometimes get is that in order to, to become a, a fully capable priest, they have to have mastered philosophy before they move on to the higher art or science of theology. Have you ever heard of that before? I, I didn't know that. I, I know that that didn't happen to me when I entered into the, I don't, we're not the Pope's church, we're the, the what are we? Christ's church, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, know that, exactly. I know that that didn't happen to me. Exactly. And I think that's, that's good. I mean, we, we, we do require our seminarians to have a bachelor's degree, which I mean, I, which I think means it proves the capacity to learn. Not that bachelor's degrees are at all important to the Missouri Synod, really. But rather, we, we want to be sure that those men who are being called into the ministry uh, uh, have the capacity to, to deal with the ancient languages, you know, uh, because that's going to be necessary when, when uh, preaching the, the word to the people. Yet, you see that our, our pastors come from all walks in life. I don't, uh, pastor Apple, did you do anything before, uh, besides uh, going to college and stuff before becoming a, a pastor? I was a first career, or I'm a, this is my first vocation, yes. So I, ah, I straight I, through, yep. Okay. What well, about you? Yeah, so uh, I did a handful of things. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a second career guy, and I went to the second career seminary, right? And there you're gathered, uh, you're, 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 you're gathered together, and you, you have guys who are bankers, you have guys who, who are teachers, you have – uh, engineers and, and even former scientists, and, and uh, you have folks from all these different walks of life and different levels of education, right? And that's how it is at the seminary. And, and thanks be to God that uh, whatever former backgrounds you may have had, and whatever labor you would put your hand to or whatever education you had, you're all gathered together under the single, singular purpose of learning directly from Jesus and his word at the seminary so that you will be fully equipped St. Paul says later on in Ephesians chapter 4, fully equipped to preach and to administer the means of grace to Christ's church. Uh, because uh, so what, it doesn't matter what kind of pedigree you have. What matters is, can you sit down and listen while Jesus speaks? And once he, you have heard from Jesus, can you confess, right? And that's going to be a theme in Matthew's gospel as well. Uh, leading into Matthew chapter 16, even though Peter was a simple fisherman, even though all the, the, the brilliant uh, people of that age were saying all kinds of different things about Jesus, it came from the mouth of the simple fisherman that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, of course, says, upon this confession, I will build my church. Uh, okay. And uh, we also see that uh, uh, at the, uh, like, uh, maybe uh, sometime before, John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, and the disciples come after Jesus. Now here, Jesus is, is like the, uh, it's like formal receiving day into seminary. <laughs> and instead of putting in an application and waiting for it to be approved, 
which is what we do nowadays. What Jesus does is he, he goes and handpicks these guys. He sees them at their labor at the, at the nets, and he says, come and follow me. And according to his voice, according to what he says to them, he calls them into the ministry of the word, uh, which begins with being good disciples or learners, uh, being able to follow Jesus and listen as he teaches what the kingdom of God is and what it means to, to give that kingdom of grace to others. Um, and uh, that's a beautiful picture of what the divine call is in the church even today. Uh, we, we, we still go through the rigmarole of uh, putting in applications to go to the seminary, right? Uh, but the men who do that yet have been told probably by their pastor and probably by the members of their own church and if not other faithful Christians and in our sister congregations that you should be a pastor. Uh, maybe they've had a professor at one of the Concordias who's encouraged them saying, you have what it takes uh, to take up the noble calling of administering God's word and means of grace to shepherd God's people. You know? So already through the voice of the church, the mediated of, the call of Christ is coming to these men. And so the focus shouldn't be so much as, as our heroic you know, submissions of applications to the seminary, uh, but rather on the voice of the church, which is the means uh, of, uh, that Jesus uses to call men into the ministry, that these guys are also nowadays being called into the ministry. Now, the metaphor, stop me if I'm going too long, by the way. No, that, that's, that's where <laughs> I was going to take you next, is, is the particular, okay. you've, used, you've talked about shepherding, ministry, but, but Jesus right. here says fishers of men. So, yeah, take us yeah. there next. Okay. Now, the, the, the metaphor is, is wonderful. Uh, first of all, it's a metaphor that Peter and Andrew and James and John can understand. They're used to dealing with nets. They're used to, to throwing them out and gathering in the fish with them, right? And this, if anything, should be a lesson to, to the pastors out there, that when you preach, make sure that the folks, you're using some pictures from time to time that the folks can see and understand. <laughs> and the metaphor is wonderful, too, because it's, it captures exactly what they will be doing. Now, instead of using a, a, a rope or a hemp net that they're going to cast into a, a body of water, Jesus is preparing them to cast the net of the word. And the word is going to be thrown out into the, onto the sea of this world, and it's going to gather a crowd of people together Around, uh, who have been pulled in by the word, right? And that is a, a, a wonderful image of, of the word of God doing the work of the kingdom of grace. It's, it's, a, it's an image that uh, Peter and, and Andrew and James and John totally understand. And it's one that we can understand too. Even though I, don't, uh, uh, I haven't seen except in movies in one fishing trip in, in Florida, uh, somebody actually casting a net, right? <laughs> Usually when we fish, we use... The, the singular, what do you call it, the fishing line with the bob and the, and the lure and these sorts of things. Uh, though the, the, the picture of the word isn't so much the, the angler who's, you know, casting, trying to catch the trophy bass. It's, it's the fisherman who's throwing out the net and gathering in as many fish in one cast as possible. And that's what your pastor does on Sunday. He has all these people gathered before him, right? And they're all, be, and they're all drawn to that place on that day by the word to hear the word and be held together by the word. Um, and, and, uh, and so it was at the very beginning when Jesus was casting the net of repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand in the region of, 
of Galilee, and so it is today, uh, be it in St. Louis or uh, wherever Pastor Apple lives in Texas. Texas is just like a huge city that spreads out from Dallas, right? <laughs> no, no, not da- Dallas is, is too far north. Yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe, oh, okay. maybe from Santa. That's okay. No, yeah, but, <laughs> right. So, so Pastor Flaming, you've been talking a lot here <laughs> about about fishers of men and the office of the ministry. How does mm. how does the calling of, of fishers of men apply to the church at, at large, both both pastors and lay people? Uh, how does it apply to the church at large, to both pastors and lay people? Right. So, well, so the call to be fishers of men, does that, I mean, yeah. is that only for pastors or, or is there more going on? Well, I would say that if, if we want to be very specific here, uh, that Jesus isn't giving this call, I will make you fishers of men to everyone. Instead, he's giving it to the individuals who are being named as the future pillars of the church. Andrew, Peter, James. John. And it's referring to the special work, the apostolic work that they're going to be doing, namely giving Jesus's words to the, to the sinful and the dying world that needs these words, that will be uh, raised to life by these words. Um, in an extended sense, we can understand what Jesus is saying for all the, the entirety of the Holy Christian Church. Uh, uh, so even though there, there's a distinction in the church between the, the preaching office and the baptized hearing office, or, or the, the office of, of, of priests that offer up the prayers and, and thanksgivings and songs to God, nevertheless, God's word is a possession of the whole church. It doesn't belong to just a few men, and they meet it out meagerly, right? Or, or what do you call it? Miserly. <laughs> But instead, God's word belongs to the whole church. We possess it. Uh, it's just that these men are going to possess it publicly and administrate it publicly to gather in as many people as, as Jesus desires for his church. Now, when we, according to our various callings, have opportunity to speak like a Christian and to confess our baptized faith, God will use that word as his net. You know, how many Christians have been drawn into the church because they've had a friend who said, uh, kind of like, uh, 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 who've had a friend who said, come, come to church with me. Come and hear what the preaching is all about. You have all these ideas about Jesus, but I want you to hear Jesus not according to the law, like you hear in all these other churches, but according to God's undeserved mercy and his mercy and grace alone, Right? Uh, uh, untold numbers of folks are brought into the church in this way. And that is the word of God being cast uh, and the word of God working. Now, in any case, whether the word of God is being used in the, in the home by the father who's catechizing his family or the word of God is being cast by the pastor who's doing it publicly, um, it, it, it's good to remember that the, the word, the net, is, is, is carrying all of the weight. Uh, uh, that the word is sufficient for the task, even if men aren't all that sufficient or up to it, which is one of the great lessons of, of Peter from this point forward, uh, that Peter, even though he's going to be a, a pillar of the church, even though he's going to be the chief of the, of the apostles, nevertheless, he's a, a sinner, and he falls into sin again and again. And yet God is pleased through this, through this uh, sinful and forgiven man, through this redeemed man, to cast the word 
And the word, even, even though it's preached by, by men who aren't perfect, the word is perfect. And it, it converts those souls according to God's will. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's so much is going at the idea that you were hoping to. No, that, that, that's what I, yeah that that's along the lines that I was I was thinking that yeah. that in the vocation of pastor the the man who's in the office of the holy ministry proclaims that word publicly but that that word mm. then that belongs to the whole church is used in those various vocations and as that word is spoken in those vocations that too serves as the as the net by which God continues to gather his church I think you you nailed it perfectly so pastor Flynn, we got six minutes left and there's still a few verses here and we, we probably yeah. spent the whole time on these few verses but but so having called these men to be fishers of men with him Jesus then begins to travel he goes throughout Galilee and, and there's a couple of things going on he's he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing how Take us into these last verses. We've got six minutes left on the morning to, to look at these. Hmm. Yeah, so, so why the healing ministry? Uh, I, I've been asking myself this question uh, over the past week. Um, what is the significance that, that God manifests himself before the world in healing? And I think it, it has something to do with this. Uh, so often we're tempted to become spiritual Platonists. Do you know what that means? Like, where, where, where our spirituality is so pure and perfect and unsullied by this world that, that, uh, uh, that the world, whatever happens in the world happens to the world, and then my spirituality is so uh, immaterial and perfect and pristine and, and uh, that I don't even want it to come close to the world, right? I was just talking to the, a lady yesterday. This is something. And she had belonged to a handful of Reformed churches through her life. And I'm talking of the Arminian variety and the Calvinistic variety. And for her, she, she told me, and this was with no prompting whatsoever, and I do a lot of prompting usually, but I didn't prompt this time. Well, she told me that, that the spirituality that she had learned from these Reformed churches was so distant that when the time came and her husband died, and when the time came for him to suffer and for her to suffer alongside him, that that God was, that they preached was so alien and distant and pure and perfect that she didn't see how it applied at all to her husband suffering from cancer and, and then dying. And I'm thinking, in my, you know, and the whole time she's saying this, in my heart I'm, I'm like bursting to tell her of the, the significance of the incarnation and the, and the incarnate hope that we have in Christ and how Christ preaches a full redemption, not just an immaterial redemption, but a full bodily redemption, a full bodily resurrection through the healing ministry. And that's what I think the significance is, that when Jesus comes to make all things new, as he says in the book of Revelation, he means it not just in a hyper-spiritual sense, but also in a worldly sense, you know? And so we, you and I as pastors, uh, we tell the folks who are suffering, and they're, who are dying, that God cares about your bodies, you know? And, and he will raise you up on the last day so that you should have the kind of faith that Job has, where he says, with these eyes, right? And not with another, or spiritual eyes, or some kind of avatar's eyes. But with these eyes, with which I see right now, I will see again, and I will see the face of my Redeemer. And so, uh, and, and so the healing ministry shows that everything that belongs to the curse of sin, 
especially to the disintegration and, and the destruction and the corruption of creation. All of these things are coming to a swift end in this man and, in his, and according to his preaching and his word. Now, we, it's true. We don't yet see the restoration and the new creation yet with our eyes, right? But we hear it through the word and we believe it. So even if you and I aren't necessarily the recipients of, of Jesus' direct healing ministry today, nevertheless, we have, we have a living hope that, that everything that the devil attacks right now in our life, uh, be it fortune or, or, or goods or, or, or even our bodies and lives and the lives and, and the bodies of our friends and family, even if all these things are taken away from us, we know that Jesus loves us so much that he will give it all back to his church on the day of resurrection. So just um, real quick, because that means then that Jesus' healing ministry, it, it does show that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that he's the Son of God in the flesh, but it, it's not just a proof of something else. It's actually part and parcel of what he's here to do, that, that this is a part of what it means for him to be the Christ. It's not just a, a proof of something else. Is, is that, I mean, we got one oh, minute left. Is oh, that, yeah. is that fair so that's, to say? That's a great point. Uh, a lot of times when, whenever uh, Jesus would engage in healing or, or miracles and you read the old Lutheran preaching, they would say that this is Jesus proving uh, the power of his word by manifesting his divine power. And that's true. That's absolutely true. That's also a part of it. If I see a guy who by his own authority heals and restores, right, and he's not appealing to some higher power, he is the higher power, that's a convincing proof that this is something uh, that I've never seen before. And so I'm going to follow him and, and listen to him. And, and so the, the works of power accompany the preaching of the word to show that the word is more than just the words of men, but in fact, the word of God. Now, that's absolutely true. That being said, uh, the works of power that God selects to accompany the ministry, the works of power by which he reveals the divinity of this man, Jesus, are works that are in concert with the preaching of the gospel. Jesus preaches for the, the undoing and the end of sin, right? And his works show that the effects of sin are being ended. Uh, absolutely. So, so there is a, a, a real theological reason or, uh, why, why the, the, the healing ministry accompanies the word as opposed to other works of power, uh, wh uh, whatever you might uh, imagine, right? Uh, pastor Brian Flamey. Kind of pastor oh, yeah. Brian Flamey is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>